Welcome to the Gregarious Mammal Podcast. This is Chris broadcasting live from a New Orleans hotel room where people are starting to wake up and it's a very old building and there's lots of banging. Uh, so I have no idea what I'm going to be sounding like here. And joining me as always is... This is Kate from a rather cloudy and somewhat windy Berlin. That's a shame. That's a shame. And welcome to a slightly redesigned podcast episode. We're going to align this a bit more with the newsletter I've been sending out for the past 10 weeks. And so we have sort of less duplicate content to promote and et cetera, et cetera. And you get to uh, hear our opinions on different things in different ways. So I am going to kick off with a an interesting article that it's a rumor, but if uh, the rumor is realized, it could have an interesting impact. Um, this is about how... Uh, there is experimentation in being able to run Linux applications on Chrome OS. And uh, I was actually speaking to a friend. This is apparently not new. You have unofficially been able to do this for a while because Chrome OS is at its core uh, Linux. But this is going to be more official and with the support of Google. Uh, I've recently been writing a little bit around the future and the not too bright future of desktop operating systems and how Linux may end up winning just because Microsoft and Apple don't, don't care anymore. Um, but I never would have thought that uh, Google would be kind of the, the potential saviour of the desktop OS. Uh, I say desktop in quote marks because a lot of Chrome OS is very cloud-based. So what this will mean for the Linux applications, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, and also, I mean, Chrome OS is not as open as things like uh, Ubuntu or Red Hat. So it's 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 a strange one. We'll see if it becomes true or not. Um but it potentially opens up the world of Linux to a lot of students, a lot of uh, consumer users of laptops where Chrome OS is, is very popular. Um, yeah. And that was my first article. Kate, what's your first article? I see robots in the title. I do. I do indeed. This is the Robot Assault on Fukushima from Wired Magazine. And it's looking at the... Earthquake and tsunami in Japan from 2011 and the fact that they've still got a massive, massive amount of nuclear waste that needs to be cleaned up. Uh, they're looking at that taking decades, over 40 decades, or sorry, 40 years, I should say, not decades, we, we hope. <laughs> um, but they've, they've found themselves in a bit of a conundrum that's been a lot worse than what they had with Chernobyl because with Chernobyl they were able to build a bit of a... Uh, a cocoon, if you like, or a, um, a covering over the whole uh, factory. And in, when it comes to Fukushima, it's not the case due to the, um, the physical landscape being very different. And the problem they've got is that they know that there was a whole huge amount of uranium fuel that um, overheated and turned into lava, sorry, and leaked through steel containers. But then they don't know where it went and how it, what kind of shape it's in now. And it's information they need to be able to plan the cleanup because what's happening is water is seeping into the reactors and then, of course, the radiation is going out into the sea and the water and all those sorts of things. So what they've been doing is working with robots, so getting robots that can actually go into the reactors um, through using both mainstream companies like iRobotics and uh, Mitsubishi and Hitachi and Toshiba to build robots through this um, this group they call the International Research Institute for Nuclear Decommissioning. And they made a bunch of different machines to see what would work. Um, this cost over $100 million so far in just making these robots. And basically they're, they're, they're still getting there. 
it's it's very much a work in progress. They've been doing this for about three or four years now. But it's, you know, it, it shows you that this really is what we want our robots to be doing. These are jobs that humans can't do. That, you know, it's not like, oh, uh, humans are being replaced by robots. These are what robots are, are, are being designed for. And it kind of puts, puts the whole idea of uh, machine automation on its head a little bit, uh, particularly when it comes to some of that dis- hysteria that we hear from other people. So it's a, it's a long read, and I'd encourage people to take a look. All right, from Nuclear Meltdown to potential internet meltdown. Uh, this is a GDPR story, the the other spectre that is haunting the world right now. Um, actually, it's, it's fascinating. Yesterday, even at uh, CollisionConf, which is where I am in New Orleans, I saw American startups starting to pitch GDPR tech, which is quite interesting that even the Americans are taking advantage of the new potential for, for work. Anyway... Um, this is about who is. This is an article. There's a series of articles, actually. Uh, we'll link to just one, but there's actually a whole series of them following the story on the register um, about who is the internet database for who owns uh, domains. Unless you buy extra privacy when you buy a domain, generally your information, the information you supply is public. Um, and this sort of goes counter to GDPR a little bit. And who is have admitted to the European authorities that they have absolutely no idea what to do about this and are nowhere near ready for the May 25th deadline. Um, and have asked for special dispensation. And uh, I guess being such a fundamental part of the internet architecture, they're probably going to get it. But uh, I actually, I mean, they're probably not the only organisation that are having problems like this, but at least they're being honest about it, I suppose. Uh yeah, it's it's quite fascinating. And I, I sometimes sort of wonder in these sorts of cases what will happen. Will the European Union start kind of granting exemptions, or will they literally say you you know you don't have access to this service anymore? Um, yeah, we it's yet to be seen what the actual outcome of breaches of the regulation will be. Uh, and this is quite a high profile one. Uh, it probably and like. It's probably like a, a lot of you who didn't even realise this information was public, and, and it is by default if you want to look it up. Um, I know my Who is information is horrendously out of date. They don't actually uh, ever check it accurate, but, <laughs> but uh, still. <laughs> yeah, so it's quite interesting, and I urge you to read the whole series on the register. Now, Kate, with you, we are back to robots and how robots are going to get their day in court. Yeah, we've got a bit of a theme in this episode, I guess. Yeah, this is an interesting article in Futurism, which is a favourite publication of mine. And it's based on a report by the EU last year where they were looking at the idea of robot rights. What kind of rights and status would we give robots as um, entities, if we can use that term? Uh, And what they were looking at is they kind of said, well, look, you know, we're not going to make it so they can get married. They can't buy a house or adopt a child. But we could make it possible for for self-learning robots to sue and be sued with legal status like a corporation. And as you can imagine, not everyone is terribly comfortable with this idea. Uh, Over 150 AI experts have warned the Commission that something like this is really problematic from both a legal and ethical perspective. Uh, They wrote this letter, put it all together. And what what their feeling was is that it would shift responsibility from robots' mistakes. Uh, An example might be if a caretaker robot broke someone's arm. Um, when dealing with a patient in a hospital, away from the manufacturer to the robot itself. 
And there's quite a nice little quote by one of, the, one of the signatories to the letter. This European Parliament position was what I'd call a slimy way of manufacturers getting out of their responsibility. And that's from a uh, Emetrius Professor of AI and Robotics at the University of Sheffield. So it's um, slimy. But yeah, look, it's it's a really interesting area and this idea of, you know, the harm of a robot and the damage suffered by the injured party and who should be um, held responsible. And I think this is, is timely because I know we've had the scenario recently with the Uber where um, the autonomous car where someone was killed in March uh, because they were running across the road without um, looking where they were going against the light or something like that. So I think that... Um, you know, this whole idea of robots and personhood and the rights of robots and intellectual property and uh, it could get into some very interesting areas. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Uh, it does feel a bit like, it does feel a bit slimy, yes, as a way of companies extracting themselves from responsibility. But I guess it's super interesting because in theory, if something has a conscious of its own, then should its creator be responsible? Should a mother and father be responsible for the crimes of a child, for example? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a super fascinating space. Uh, I, I get the impression that this article, or the what this article talks about, comes across as slimy because it's way too soon to be talking about something like this. And that's why it just feels like a cop-out. But it's actually, conceptually, it's interesting in the long run. But at the moment, it feels a bit slimy. Yeah. <laughs> now... I think I think this is the thing. A lot of people are looking at Sophia and thinking that all robots are no, like that, no, and they're no. not. Not yet. And and uh, yeah, far off. I think that one was very well trained. <laughs> okay, talking about the far distant future. This is a post on the verge that I don't really know how to take. Um, it's about Ready Player One, the book, the film, um, and what how it reflects the. Uh, modern tech industry and the problems with it. Uh, I mean, I, I just took the book as a good fun romp through a fairly standard plot of, you know, boy saves world, boy gets girl, with a lot of 80s reference thrown in. But no, the writer of this article takes it as a much more serious uh, indication of what is wrong, the the introspection, the uh, siloedness, the... Uh, the isolatoriness of, if that's a word, of the tech industry and how uh, people want to have it both ways too much and just live in a bubble. Um, yeah, I, I find it hard to see if this is very accurate or if this is a writer taking something way too seriously. Um, it's quite hard to say. Uh, I sort of recommend you have a read of it and make up your own mind. I, I also think like the same criticism could probably be lev uh, leveled against many works of fiction in, in some respects. I, I don't necessarily find um, William Gibson or... Uh, oh, jeez, I'm having a complete blank. Um, no, 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 no. I'm not sure if the works of William Gibson or Neil Stevenson would come across any better. Uh, would the works written by women come across differently? It's very hard to say. Um yeah, and so have a read and make your own mind up. I'd be fascinated to hear your opinions on whether you think it really is a damning indication of what is wrong or if it's just a writer having a clickbait title and taking something a little bit too seriously. 
All right, Kate, on the subjects of men ruining things, <laughs> yet again, uh, you have, this is a great, another bit of clickbait that is uh, great uh, for a title, something on the digital bromad. Yeah, this is kind of interesting. And um, we may actually get someone who, a friend of ours who's a digital nomad in um, Southeast Asia, to have a little chat with us about this topic to see what the um, the their experience is. And it's, a, it's one of those articles, I think, that's um, a little provocative, deliberately. And it's looking at this idea. It's written by a man, I should hasten to add. That the, and I'll start with by reading the first um, the first short paragraph. Skype calls in cafes without using headphones, crushing it, killing it, destroying it, entitled and arrogant, CrossFit, yeah. meet the digital bromad. I've met a lot of these people, superheroes, <laughs> ninjas. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, this ninja thing. God, it's stupid. Yeah, and, and you know, this idea that you've got all these popped collar of college bros or the braggadocio of stock traders and then you've got these guys as a I guess another layer you know with a, a macbook and an infinity pool and a mojito and what they're talking about is this idea of people that have what they call unearned confidence and hedonism and that it, it shapes itself as a toxic man- masculinity in an exotic location and this came about from a, a podcast, I believe, that was done by um, a, a, a podcast called Nomad and Spice, where they were sharing some of their experiences, a couple of women, um, their experiences as digital nomads, and some of the people that they come across in their, their day-to-day lives working in um, Southeast Asia, and, and finding that um, these kind of people were coming up a lot. And they used the terms like dropshippers, info product hucksters, selling something the world doesn't need, or preying on people trying to become digital nomads. And the latter seems to be just everywhere. Like The whole I can't service economy. The ne- the, and they highlight uh, Tim Ferriss a lot as being oh, the kind God, of yes. godfather of this kind of movement. Mm, yeah, <laughs> Exploiting got a photo other people article, and other actually. people's economies to your own benefit, basically. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's it's services for services, if you like, or services for niche niche groups of people. It's I don't know. There's a terrible terrible amount of predictability in this whole kind of thing, and it's lots of the idea is it being lots of loud men, lots of loud Americans, um, who they value their kind of their way of life by the fact that they can you know uh, work a, a handful of hours a week. And, and be living in such poor, impoverished areas that they can live like kings. And this is kind of the underlying um, concept of the whole thing, that they've got privileged passports and laptops and can, can move around Southeast Asia without really integrating in the culture. There's not necessarily directly anything wrong with that. It's just more the aspect of being loud and arrogant and unaware whilst doing it, I suppose. Actually, Kate, I'd be interested... I mean, you you mix with a lot of international women. I don't know if there's a female equivalent of a bro. Uh, I don't know if there's a word for it. Um, But would you say that there are plenty of women who are just like this too, or they're just more quiet about it? Uh, There's a few, and there are certainly women that are hustling their own kind of um, 
enterprises or, you know, and and this is where it gets interesting when you dig a bit deeper because you kind of go, well, you know, at what point is this being an innovator and being a, uh, you know, a startup sensibility and what parts are just being kind of really annoying? <laughs> and I, I don't know, I, I, I can see problems with both. It's like, um, like I, you know, one of my common criticisms of, oh, let's do a conference for women in tech or an event for women in tech rather than actually looking a bit deeper because women in tech is every, pretty much these days. Uh, so it's just the idea that because you're female and you work in tech, you're all, you're all together and they've got this continuity. And it's, it's certainly not the case. There are so many different experiences based on people's um, education, skill sets, uh, whether they're self-employed, whether they work full-time, whether they have children, blah, 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 blah. Um, huge, huge differences. And, then, and that's before we even get into any of the kind of diversity and equity groups. So I think that um, I would say that this whole kind of digital bromad, toxic masculinity kind of thing, it's not limited to the to the digital nomad scene. I think these people are everywhere. Um, no, not at all. And in fact, if you talk about dropshipping and things like that, they're not. Well, it gets a bit technical about what you want to count as digital. I mean, everyone uses a computer these days. Does that make you digital? I, I don't know. It's it's. I, I would mainly only think of like programmers, but yeah, that's just my own personal definition. <laughs> it's funny, you know. I um, a friend of mine here in um, in Berlin who's Polish went to Australia and I hooked her up with some friends to stay with over there. And she was saying something and I, I was on Facebook to me and I responded to something about backpackers and she said, I'm not a backpacker, I'm a traveller. <laughs> so yeah. oh, the terminology so... changes all the time and people, how people see themselves <sighs> when you they travel me. for... I overheard Sorry. a conversation yesterday about... I've been very conscious of traveling recently, when I've been traveling recently, of this constant desire for everyone to do what the locals do, not what tourists yeah. do. Um, yeah. And, but, you know, the fact that there's so many people trying to do that and there's so many platforms apparently assisting you in doing that, that surely now the places where the locals go are just being overridden by people who are looking for where the locals go and the locals oh, don't absolutely. go there anymore. Yeah. And I heard this horrible conversation between an older guy and a younger guy. Um, about uh, what millennials want when they travel. And I think he wanted to make it sound like it was positive, but it just sounded terrible. And it was real. It was really on this bro side of millennials want this. They want experiences. They want blah, 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 blah. And they want to get the Instagram. And oh, God. Oh God. <laughs> I don't know. Modern travel has become very strange. I've actually found myself intentionally trying to take less photos and just enjoy experiences more because I don't want to fall into this trap of following app recommendations, taking photos of all the sites and it's very hard to get out of it. But um, yeah, it's almost, it's you have this to idea almost of force yourself to disconnect. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. I find and that, what does that people even mean? are searching what does that mean? for this no authenticity, this authentic experience. And that's such a subjective idea because we know that who we are and, and where we are is based on all kinds of things. And I think I can't help wondering if these people are just dissatisfied with everywhere they go. Well, this is a greater problem of many things. <laughs> um, it was, it was it's quite fascinating. Uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what to say on this because I, I think... I've taken to traveling recently of just letting things happen 
and not planning too much because I think anytime you involve an algorithm, you're subject to bias from somewhere or other and almost just randomly just going to places reduces that and you might have a shitty time, but at least maybe it's more authentic in quote marks because you didn't involve anyone else's opinion. You just kind of went somewhere. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. This it's, very hard. Hard it's very hard. I'd hard. love to hear from the listeners how they how they navigate some of this these things. And maybe we can get some um, a few people on the show to have a chat about this because it's um, I don't know. It's something that a lot of people are talking about in um, all kinds of different spaces and contexts. And um, no one's really got any any. I wouldn't say any answers, but any solutions. And please, people, the answer is not another app. (laughs) Oh, God, no. (laughs) All right. Wrapping up uh, articles from other people with two very short ones of two future project. Two future product. Okay, wrapping up now with two very short references to two future products. First one from me is... um, So, actually, I did a talk uh, a couple of times over the past few years on... uh, digital in board games and how there's this sort of fascinating circle in some cases where there have been uh, computer games that became board games that became computer games again and all the various permutations of that. And here is another one to add to that list. So uh, Lovecraftian fiction is very popular and um, there's plenty of Lovecraftian board games and also plenty of Lovecraftian computer games, but none of them have really got it right, probably since Alone in the Dark, which is a very old game. Um, and there was a great board game, second edition of Mansions of Madness that came out a year or so ago. It's one of my favourites of the past few years, and it's been a consistent favourite of anyone who's played it, and it comes with an app, and the app uh, is basically the narrator. It runs the game for you, it times it, it gives you puzzles, it controls the monsters, and actually does a very good job, and it's been very successful. And interestingly now, they're talking about making the computerized board game into a computer game, into a fully-fledged computer game. And many people are saying, despite how strange that sounds, this could actually be like the the best-feeling Lovecraftian uh, computer game since Alone in the Dark. Like it actually would have the right feeling of wandering abandoned buildings, trying to find clues and things like that. And I'm looking forward to it. If it, if it comes out, I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, and who knows, Kate, maybe I will be playing this game in Apple-branded mixed reality glasses. Very true. Apple is actually rumoured to um, be launching some mixed reality wireless glasses by 2020. And we, this is interesting because uh, micro HoloLens, people would know, of course, have got their own kind of fan base and we've seen a lot of people bringing out glasses over the last few years from Oculus to HTC to Magic Leap and their work. You know, a lot of people work in this space, but I should say the Apple one is codenamed T288, sorry, that's T288, and they're running They're running a little bit late, so they're not going to be, um, you know, necessarily the first off the, um, the bat. And I guess what they're looking for... Um, what the hold-up is on, on their end is they're, um, they're, they're, they may be... It's speculating by di- digital trends that they may be waiting for display and chip technologies to mature before they release the headset. Um, they have done patents before in AR lens technology. Uh, people would remember the um, cr- the compact lens array. They were kind of pushing. And a lot of these things are looking at the, um, the sizing of the glasses helping with the usability and also the um, the wearability, like the wearer fatigue, um, the comfort levels, the, 
the, they want to reduce the, the kind of seasickness that a lot of people are getting with AR and VR and this sort of stuff. Um, and interestingly, what they're suggesting is that uh, these glasses may not need special in-room cameras to track the headset. So the components will either be built in the headset or an accompanying box. So that idea of that kind of short-range, high-speed wireless tech, um, maybe a processor more powerful than what we've got now, is kind of interesting. Like, you know, we could end up with something nice. It wouldn't be a, a Mac computer, like a little side computer, but it could be a, an interesting little device. Um, and they're using terms like 5 nanometer architecture. I have no idea what that is, but um, it sounds kind of special. It so, means it's very small. <laughs> Very tiny, very tiny and very special, very niche. But I guess, you know, what we're hearing now is that people are kind of still pushing this, particularly the mixed reality. We don't hear that much about VR anymore. I, I, I at least in my work in, in wearables, hear far more about AR, but there's still obviously a, a need in this space to, to integrate both of those. It's actually interesting. So there's two things here. So firstly, uh, Apple's commercial products recently have been a bit lackluster and a lot of them are let down by siri siri was groundbreaking when it started but is now very very tired um and there was a survey i actually heard where iphone users rated their least favorite features and siri won that 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 battle for the last uh and the failures of the home pod which is apparently a very good audio device but siri as a smart assistant is just useless um and they really need to get this working on any of their new devices. But then co- contrasted with that, ARKit has actually been very um, very well received. And uh, running just on phones has, has got some amazing performance. So if they get this right, it could be quite successful. If they get the price point right, if they get the service side, which is where Apple usually lacks, right as well, this could be quite interesting. Um, although the HoloLens, I don't think the HoloLens is even released yet. Uh, and I suppose the HoloLens will maybe be more for business because it's Microsoft and the Apple one could be from, yeah, what are they going to call it? Eyeglasses. <laughs> I mean, it's it's worth noting we're still waiting for Leap Motion. I mean, you've got such a large amount of money being thrown there. Um, their investment is just millions and millions. Every time I read something, there's someone else has invested some massive amount of money without them ever releasing a product. So it'll be very interesting to see. And maybe maybe by 2020 we'll have all these kind of people competing with products, but it may drop the prices down too, which would be very interesting. You all right know. then, Kate, let's wrap up this show with what we have been up to. So actually publishing probably a couple of days after this episode will be an interview we did with Marty the Robot, the very cute Marty the Robot. It's edited. It's ready to go. we just put this out first and it'll probably come up on Friday. And from my side, I uh, wrote up uh, coming back to desktops again. <laughs> That's been my real theme the past couple of weeks. I wrote up um, the uh, what's new in Ubuntu 18.04, which with its appropriately silly name, is called Bionic Beaver. Uh, I wrote about uh, deep learning with the SkyMine platform. I wrote about hybrid clouds. And I've got a few other things in progress too. Kate, uh, you have your article on uh, 
uh, smart cities and how they monetize their data. Anything else you're working on right now that hasn't yeah. been published quite yet? Um, I've been writing about drones and the use of drones in rescue missions uh, and humanitarian aid. I've also been writing about bike sharing, looking at the um, challenge of the dockerless bikes that seem to be the blight on many of our cities and also looking at um, LP1 and some of the innovations there. And in terms of events, I am travelling a tremendous amount. Uh, if you are in New Orleans at Collision Conf, I am here until Friday. Come say hello. Then I am jetting off, literally, to write the Docs US in Portland, if you're around. Even if you're not coming to the conference, it's a niche conference. But if you're in Portland, feel free to say hello. After that, I am going to Oslo for the Catapult Future Fest, where I'll be talking about preventing the Tecopolala. Whatever, that, however you say that word, <laughs> that made-up word. I can't even say I better say learn it. how to say it before the talk. <laughs> and then I'm heading from Norway down to Mauritius to speak about a variety of technologies. And I, God knows, this this month is... So we almost need like some kind of running um, map on the Gagarus Mammal page called Where's Chris? That well, you can we log do. on every it's, it's day. It's at thegurusbabble.com slash events. <laughs> yeah, but, but something interactive with a little plane or something. With well, if someone wants to code that, then I'd be happy. Um, <laughs> I actually overhauled the page slightly to tidy it up a bit. Yeah. Uh, Kate will be joining me in Krakow in a I couple will. of weeks if you want to meet her. And Kate, you're also in Boston, aren't you? In, uh, I am in um, mid-June for the um, PTV LiveWorks conference there, which will be super interesting. So it's good to get a chance to go to the States. And probably, you know, by then we'll be planning the rest of the summer. Yep. And indeed, we'll, we'll both, just after, just before that event, be in uh, Villainous for login, if you want to say hello. So quite a lot happening over the next few weeks. And we'll strive to keep the newsletters and podcasts coming in the midst of all that. Probably lots of recordings of me in hotel rooms. So so you can look forward to that. <laughs> Yay. All right, then. So we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, you can find previous episodes and show notes at gregariousmammal.com slash podcast. You can support the show at gregariousmammal.com slash support. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash gregariousmammal. Please join our mailing list if you'd like some stickers. We'll be sending some more out soon. And, uh, yeah, Kate, how can the good people stay in touch with you? Yeah, there's a few different options. You can go to katelawrence.com. You can go to Twitter, the good old at Kate underscore Lawrence. That's Kate with C and Lawrence with W. And for me, I'm at chrischinchilla.com and at chrischinch on Twitter. All right. If you have been, thank you for listening. <laughs>